0: Welcome! My name is Patrick Curran, and along with undercover vaccine developer Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. Today, we hold a traditional Irish funeral for multivariate analysis of variants, in which we start with a kind eulogy in front of family and friends in the church, and then move to a more honest reckoning with Mom and Aunt Dottie at the reception in the school gym following the service. Along with A Celebration of Life Questionably Well-Lived, we also discuss Ned Devine, Mildly Inebriated Priests, Champagne Supernovas, The Four British Actors, You Googly's, Leeches, Cowardice, Senescence, Legal Disclaimers, Bringing Out Your Dead, and Danny Boy. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So trying to be a good partner in crime... Mm -hmm. A few days back, I emailed you a list of several potential topics that we could talk about today. Mm-hmm. Although I can't remember the particulars, they were insightful, they were important, they uh-huh. would impact the field. <laughs> I don't remember what the details were, but I'm sure that they were quite good. Huh. You, within minutes, texted me back nothing more than "Manova must die. <laughs> that was your response. <clears throat> that was it. I was a little curious if you might expand on that. Uh, Since evidently that's the topic for today, because you didn't respond to any of my insightful and impactful topics that I pitched. Manova must die. (laughs) Discuss.
1: Yeah. I am at a place right now in one of my graduate courses where it's not a multivariate course per se, but it includes methods that we could categorize as multivariate. But every year I have these two little voices that drive me. One is that it's important to talk about certain topics because people still use them, maybe. And the other voice that says, oh, dear God, take it out back and just kill it. And I was at that particular point in this semester and I just needed to get that off my chest. And so I thought three words summed that up pretty well. And I sent that off to you. And without any disrespect to your keen insights that you texted, which I have no recollection of.
0: And for what it's worth, I have no recollection of either.
1: <laughs> but what was your reaction to when I texted you those three words here? Waking Ned Divine. <laughs> That's a very lovely movie. Have you seen that? Yes, I have. A number of years ago. It feels like it's 20 years old or so. My lovely
0: spouse loves to watch the set of English comedies. Mm-hmm. Four Weddings and a Funeral and <laughs> a Man Who, I don't know, walked up something and came down something. And Yes, right. There are many, many of these. And as far as I can tell, they all have the same four actors. That's <laughs> it's it's true. <laughs> There is this lovely scene in Waking Ned Divine*. If you haven't seen this, I would recommend it. If you have a date night with your partner, this is a lovely little movie. Mm-hmm. There's some premise where they have to pretend that one of the elderly men in the village is dead. Mm-hmm. And it gets out of hand to the point where they're having a funeral for him where the guy is sitting in the front row of his own funeral. Right. (laughs) And his best friend gets up and has to do a eulogy for him.
1: The words that are spoken at a funeral
0: are spoken too late for the man that is dead. What a wonderful thing it would be to visit your own funeral. Now we're gonna take a super hard right turn here. Mm-hmm. For those of you Zoolander fans, <laughs> this would be a you googly. Thought you were gonna tell me what a bad you I am. A what? A you one who speaks at funerals. Or did you think I'd be too stupid to know what a you googly was? So I'm mixing my wife's genre right. <laughs> with my genre.
1: But totally compatible.
0: <laughs> but totally compatible. But it was a you-googly. Uh-huh. It was the most lovely scene where he gives a eulogy for his best friend while his best friend is sitting in the front row. Yeah. And my first thought was we could give a you Googly for Minova while it's still alive. And then, I got to tell you, I've been to a lot of Irish Catholic funerals, mm-hmm. and so we can have the You Googly as part of the service, mm-hmm. and then we retire to the gymnasium <laughs> at our sacred Mother of Bloody Tears parish. <laughs> And my mom and Aunt Dottie Uh can go to the corner table Uh and start to really do an Irish wake about what Manova was really like. So Uh here's my pitch based on your text.
1: (laughs) My three-word text.
0: Your three-word text. (laughs) I think we should do a you googly Mm -hmm. while Manova is alive, sitting Mm -hmm. in the front row, and then we retire to the middle school gymnasium and have a true Irish wake. Where the beer starts flowing and people start really saying what Minova was like. Because the funny thing is there's an exit quote out of the scene from Waking Ned Divine. Uh-huh. These are the two men talking to one another. And here's what they say as they come out of the church.
1: Well, he must have been a great man, this Michael fellow. He had his faults. So that's where we'll start. So someone has to start... The eul- sorry it's not eulogy, you googly. <laughs> right. Are you the first you googalizer?
0: Oh dude, I already gave my contribution to this entire episode. <laughs> I am literally done.
1: Okay, there's one slight problem here. Although I've been to many funerals and I've you googalized at many funerals, <laughs> I have never been to an Irish Catholic funeral, so I don't actually know what this is like.
0: Really? I know, I know. So you put on your coat and tie that you only <laughs> wear for these types of occasions. <laughs> And indeed, you check the inside pocket, and there is the flyer from the prior funeral, and you look at it and say, oh yeah, I remember that.
1: Oh, canonical correlation. Uh,
0: So we all go into the sanctuary, and you slowly all file in, and you gotta throw an elbow occasionally to get on the end of a pew, because mm-hmm. it's kind of like getting an aisle seat on a Southwest flight. is not only can you <laughs> fold your legs a little bit better, but if you need to bolt to the bathroom, mm-hmm. uh, you can. And you get all settled in, and there's kind of a quiet point. There's a coffin up front. Mm. The Irish priest of questionable sobriety mm-hmm. walks up to the lectern and greets us for the service today. Mm-hmm. That's your cue.
1: <laughs> My cue? Yeah. Okay, um, here we go. <clears throat> well, thank you everyone for coming. We're gathered here today to pay our final respects to Manova. Manova was one of the big four OVAs. Why, if you Google OVA, you get the ANOVA and the ANCOVA and the MANOVA and the MANCOVA. You also get Champagne Supernova, which is a song by the brilliant Brothers Gallagher. Oasis. In a champagne supernova in the sky. Anyway, so top five. It's one of the top one of the top five of us
0: I am teleported back to one of these this is pretty much the opening one of the things that you have to do is try to keep a straight
1: face through these things and so you have pretty much just hit the nail on the head okay so I'm guessing this is the part where people get up and say nice things about the deceased or in this case the uh, I don't know if it's deceased but it's on it's on life support right (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: We do tend to have these after they have passed on.
1: Okay. So I know that you don't currently teach MANOVA, but when you did teach it, what was the sell for it? What were some of the finer points of it that you were trying to make for folks?
0: Let me open with a broader issue, which is the multivariate entirely. Mm -hmm. I used to teach a multivariate stats class. Mm -hmm. I was incredibly fortunate to learn multivariate myself from Leona Aiken at Mm -hmm. Arizona State And not only was she a remarkable teacher, but she was profoundly generous and shared her lecture notes with me. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of modified them, but the core were hers. It was the equivalent of our third semester. Mm -hmm. So we had null hypothesis testing in NOVA was the first semester. Second semester was regression. And then third was multivariate. Mm -hmm. And it was not required, but for many students, it was just expected that they would take it. And I would spend almost a month just on matrices, doing matrix algebra, eigenvalues, eigenvectors, determinants, all of that. And Mm -hmm. then each week do a different multivariate approach and manova was one of the very first that you would do yeah.
1: it's a total buffet course right where this week we'll be doing this
0: yep exactly we're now going to do three hours on x mm-hmm. and the main reason that i no longer teach it is not being facetious this is how it would really play out we would go through pretty hardcore two and a half hours because it was all matrix-based it was all based on, you know, eigenvalues, determinants, ratios of determinants. And I get to the end of the lecture and I'd say, so that is MANOVA. But you're never really going to use that in practice. There are other (laughs) better approaches. Uh, Mm -hmm. The problem set is due Monday and next week we will talk about whatever. Discriminant function analysis, Mm -hmm. canonical correlation, Mm -hmm. repeated measures, ANOVA or MANOVA. And at the end of each one, I would say, yeah, but you'll never use this in practice because it's too limited. And not only was it kind of a letdown, but in all sincerity, the students started getting really frustrated Yeah. because it's like, why am I learning about discriminant function analysis when your conclusion is the assumptions are so restrictive, you're never going to use this. We stopped teaching that and we have... A measurement course, classical test theory, multi-level modeling, SEM, longitudinal SEM, all of these things. But there's still a core to that class that I really miss that is no longer presented in any of our existing classes. And it's that matrix-based dimension reduction kind of thing, which is, I think, one of the advantages of a MANOVA-like Approach. Very briefly, if for those who aren't familiar with it, is we have analysis of variance where we have a single dependent variable, a multivariate analysis of variance, as we do functionally in ANOVA, but on a linear composite of a set of dependent variables, mm-hmm. get some kind of omnibus test, and then to better understand that, move back to the ANOVA like framework. That was not an answer to your question.
1: Yes, <laughs> you're the worst eulogizer. I like that you said that there's a part of the multivariate that you miss. So do you feel some responsibility to to convey anything about MANOVA for people to be able to consume literature that uses MANOVA? Or how, how do you feel about that?
0: I feel like there is a responsibility to be a knowledgeable consumer when you see it in the literature. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's a long list of things I believe graduate students should somehow magically get on their own. Right. Without me actually teaching it. Mm -hmm. And then I hold them responsible for not knowing it. (laughs) It's really kind of a win-win, at least for me. Yes, the
1: latent curriculum that we're guilty of. Yeah, some of the selling points that I say, and and as I mentioned, I wrestle with this, right? I wrestle with my role as being someone who helps people be knowledgeable consumers of the literature, to be critical consumers of the literature. One of the things that I talk about, and I think one of the things that was a sell of Manova was the idea that you will have more power in this collective approach, that you're not just looking for differences on why one but you're collectively looking for differences on Y1, Y2, Y3, Y4, Y5 on some linear composite, some discriminant function whose job actually is to maximize the differences so you have a prayer of finding them. So I think people were really drawn to MANOVA as a technique because it had a lot of power. Again, there are problems associated with that, as you alluded to. If I'm standing up here before the crowd saying some nice things about MANOVA, I might mention that it had the potential to have more power than any of the univariate the Anovums. Wait. The... <laughs> Do you have anything nice to say, or you just you just want to go to the gym and start drinking and trashing the near-deceased?
0: Go over sit with mom and mm-hmm. Aunt Dottie uh-huh. and let's talk about what Manova was really like. Uh-huh. Um we have a continuous dependent variable, we have a set of factors in an analysis of variance. Mm-hmm. You know, we can be bold and have a continuous covariate. So it's one of the ovum. Mm -hmm. So it's an an Mm ANCOVA. And I guess the short answer is no. I don't Mm -hmm. have a lot to say positively about it. I mean, all right. So you have biological sex. You have some treatment. You have, are they in public or private schools, So we have a two by two by two design matrix. And instead of having one continuous outcome, we have three continuous outcomes. We do an omnibus test of the set of factors on the set of three outcomes simultaneously. It turns out to be another anticlimactic kind of thing because at least with Wilkes-Lambda, there are other options for that. But it's just a ratio of determinants. Mm-hmm. And so you have one matrix, you have another matrix, you compute the determinants, you take the ratio of it, that's the test. And yes, it does have higher power, but, you know, it's a hypothesis I just don't care about. Mm -hmm. All means on all DVs are equal across all levels of all factors. Right. Okay, so you reject that null, and then what do you do? You just go back to the ANOVAs that we did beforehand. Mm -hmm. And if you're conscientious about it, you say, oh, I should probably slap that P value down a little bit since we're doing multiple tests and you're doing some kind of protection against family-wise inflated error rates. But there's not much it offers to
1: me personally. Mm -hmm. So some of the best minds of the early 20th century were working on this probably people in the building that you actually work in, mm-hmm. the who's who list. We, You got Fisher and Hotelling and Rao and Wilkes and Lawley, all of these people working to try to expand this general linear model into the broader multivariate general linear hypothesis. And one of the things that was born out of this model is MANOVA. And you're saying, yeah, but... That's your reaction now in hindsight, is that, yeah, yeah, maybe mathematically it's cool, but you're finding misfit between its mathematical nature and the kinds of things it can do in research, is that it?
0: Yeah, I, I see it as a stopping point, right, it's kind of like the Oregon Trail, is it's a stopping point on there, and what they were doing at the time with the given knowledge for the purposes at hand that it's interesting, it's a development, right? We used to also use leeches and drill holes and skulls to let out evil spirits. And we don't do that anymore because that was part of the trajectory of the development of our field. And I think part of that development was it was a natural extension of the univariate models. Mm -hmm. But part of it, and maybe this is getting a little ahead of ourselves, but if we're going to go sit at the folding table in the gymnasium of Mm -hmm. the middle school for our sacred mother of perpetual bloody tears (laughs) with Aunt Dottie and my mom, One of the things they might say is, well, he was pretty cowardly. Ooh. And what I mean is, is you have a set of dependent variables Mm -hmm. that you believe in some way to be related to one another, but you're not going to suck it up and make any statement about that. You're just going to say, oh, I think they're correlated with each other. I'm going to do an overall test. And then to understand it, I'm going to do individual tests. Well, what do you mean? How, how are they related to one another? Are they multiple indicators on an underlying latent factor? Are they potentially mediating mechanisms? Are they things that we believe are related to one another in some deterministic way? <laughs> I mean, all you're saying, it's, it's, it's a very non-specific, ah, I'm just going to let them correlate with one another. I think they're related, but I don't know how. I don't find that helpful. I don't find it a useful statement about the structure of your data.
1: Okay, so two reactions to that. One is you are in fact the worst speaker to invite to <laughs> <laughs> to a funeral, and two, truth or dare? Have you ever used Manova as part of a research project? I don't know if it's a truth or dare, but I'll go with no. No, is it? What what would it be instead of true confessions? Never have I ever. Never. Okay. Uh, no, I don't know.
0: Go ahead. <laughs> how, do, how do I play that? I don't know. I'll have uh, to ask one of my daughters. Right. Okay, let's just go back and say in a published application that I've done, I have never done uh, MANOVA. Uh-huh. I've never done an ANOVA. ANOVA? AN ANOVA. I have never done an analysis of variance. No, I
1: have not. Huh. Okay. That's really interesting. I have one time in college. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I think I did once or twice, and you're completely correct that it's a very loose justification that these variables kind of hang together, but it's cowardly in that sense. And I I think we should be more specific about that as soon as we get to the gym, and I feel us getting pulled to the gym very, very soon. I will tell you there's one time when I thought it was pretty reasonable, and and I think I still think it is. Imagine you have a bunch of athletes, we'll say people doing archery, and they are shooting at a particular target, and we have some people who are doing it under one set of conditions and other people doing it under a different set of conditions, and we want to be able to gauge something about position relative to the target, etc. And a multivariate analysis variance to me can take the multiple dimensions into account simultaneously and make the comparison in a meaningful, omnibus way. It becomes the problem you have if you say, well, does one group tend to be more to the left or right? Does another group tend to be more up or below? But if you're trying to do it in an omnibus way, I think there's something there. But other than that, I think that you're right. So maybe we should transition to the gym. So what happens? How does this thing end? And then how do we all get to the gym?
0: So the thing ends and then you wait for the priest and the entourage to pass because you can't leave until they go by. And then it's kind of a free-for-all out of the sanctuary. And usually you go across a parking lot because mm-hmm. there's a gymnasium that's on the other side of the parking lot. And you go in and there's a potluck pitch-in buffet. And if you get the aisle seat in the pew uh-huh. and you're willing to throw a few elbows with your great-aunts, uh-huh. <laughs> you can go through the food line first. Oh and then pick a table toward the edge so that you don't have to talk to anybody. Uh And then Aunt Dottie will come and sit by you, and then Mom will come and sit by you, and then those two start telling stories about Minova (laughs) when he was a younger man (laughs) that somehow didn't come up during the service. Uh
1: (laughs) Just because we have chiseled abs and stunning features, it doesn't mean that we too can't not die in a freak, gasoline fight accident. Should we, should there be, like, some light music in the back? How, how does this work?
0: Somebody might have some CD on infinite repeat uh-huh. <laughs> of, like, some light Irish Celtic music. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, that's not right. Eh, <laughs> uh, not quite right either.
1: There we go. And so there are, what, 19 different potato dishes?
0: 17, but if you're going to be stereotyped about it, sure, we'll go with 19.
1: All right, have a beer and start letting loose, and maybe bring some crystallization to some of the things that you were alluding to before. I'll point out one that you said, and that is that people are not brave when it comes to articulating the nature of the relations among the variables. Can you say more about that?
0: Yeah, because I got to tell you, Greg, that really is the only main thing mm-hmm. that stops me with the MANOVA and its ilk. Like, you can talk about all the assumptions, the requirements, the compound symmetry or sphericity or, or, you know, homogeneity or all of these things. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of that stuff is technical. And a lot of it we could work around, you know, missing data or things like that. I mean, these are solvable problems. Mm-hmm. But... Let's take a super simple example, and one that I, I have to admit I like teaching this stuff because there's an elegance to it. There really is. There's a beauty and an elegance of moving from the univariate to the multivariate in a way that I, I really like to think about. But imagine the two-group T-tests. We're going to go super simple and say, you're working out there on your dissertation. You have an intervention that you're doing with kids, You have a super simple design just for sake of argument you have a weightless control and you have a group that received the active treatment Mm -hmm. all right so you have a treatment and a control group and you are interested in how does this impact depression how does this impact anxiety and how does this impact stress Mm -hmm. those are your three dependent variables so you could do just three t tests a t-test on each one compare the means but hotelling would roll over in his grave <laughs> and say, well, depression, anxiety, and stress are correlated. You need to include those. And so when you do just a two-group comparison, it's literally called hotelling's T squared. Mm-hmm. And so you compare treatment and control on the set of those three dependent variables simultaneously. That's hotelling's T squared, which is a simplified multivariate ANOVA. It's the same thing. It just is a, a MANOVA with two groups. But my point is, okay, so you get this optimal linear combination of depression, anxiety, and stress. You have a null hypothesis that that optimal linear combination is not differ for treatment and control. And you reject that. And then you go to the univariate test to see what was the source of that rejection. Where I get jammed up is, but wait a minute, how do you believe depression, anxiety, and stress to be related to one another? Mm-hmm. And are we at a place theoretically, not even analytically, but theoretically to impose some stronger structure onto that That helps us understand this in a better way than just saying, well, all the means are equal or all the means are not equal.
1: I loved what you said about there's a certain elegance to it because I completely feel it when I'm explaining it. I love the idea of going from and again, let's just stick with the two groups because it's not there's no need really to talk about more groups at this point. You've got these two means when you're doing a t-test that you're comparing them, and they have a certain distance between them. And when you move into the multivariate space, you don't have means per se. You have centroids, which are really just where those means locate a particular dot, right? That center of mass for each of the scatter plots. But at the end of the day, you've got a centroid sitting over there in the space defined by, what was it, depression, anxiety, and stress. and stress. Yeah, you've got a centroid, a little point hovering in 3D space over there, And you've got a point hovering somewhere else that represents the other group. And you could just draw a line from one to the other. And that distance is the distance that Hotelling's T-squared is trying to test. And you can think about it in a one-dimensional way, right? You can imagine that you connect those two centroids and just keep the line going and then project all of the scores onto that axis. That axis is the discriminant function. And now you're basically looking at a univariate t-test. There's some little differences here and there with degrees of freedom and other stuff. But conceptually, it distills down to putting that axis in that passes through those centroids, smushing all the points down onto the axis, and asking whether or not there are significant differences in what are now the means the point that you raise that I think is really important is what the heck does it mean to say that those variables go together? And you're you're spot on when people are so loose about that. There's no articulation of what that means. And the way I like to think about it is the following and see if this makes sense to you. I'm going to take it from three dimensions down to two dimensions, just for simplicity, because it's hard for me to think. (laughs) Okay, it's hard for me to think even in two dimensions, but let's go with this. Mm -hmm. So we have anxiety and depression and no stress for this purpose, okay? Okay. And we define a plane, just a Cartesian plane, where one of the axes represents depression and the other axis represents anxiety. Mm -hmm. And if we took one group and we did a scatter plot of them... We would expect to have what, what shape would you characterize a scatterplot of of anxiety and depression?
0: A nice positively tilted oval, like a contour plot. Okay. Some modest positive relation that is not deterministic. If you're higher on depression, you tend to be higher on anxiety.
1: So it's like an egg with its top tilted to the right. Exactly. Good. And if someone handed you that scatter plot and said if you could take these two dimensions of data and represent them with only a single axis, right? Not two dimensions, but one axis, where would you put that axis with respect to that scatter plot of points? I would try to split the difference straight down the middle, right? Not Yeah. It's not exactly like a regression line. It's it's like the middle of two regression lines, right? It's like a principal component. Yep. Yeah. So if I had to reduce the dimensionality of that and say the essence of this relation between anxiety and depression, it would be with an axis that's heading in that positive orientation. Mm -hmm. But we have two groups. We don't just have one group. In your example where we have group one and group two, treatment and control kind of thing, whether I have a treatment group or a control group, I would still generally expect that kind of relation between the two variables, right? I don't have any reason to believe that they're different. That's right. In fact, that's an assumption underlying MANOVA. Right. Now, here's what I would like to do. I would like to take one of those eggs of points, let's call it the control group, and put it in the upper left corner of the plane. Mm -hmm. Let's call it the northwest corner, right? It's up in Seattle. Okay. We're putting that egg of points up in the northwest corner in Seattle. Yeah. Good. Now, we're taking the other group, and we're saying there are differences in the means, Mm -hmm. and we're going to put it down in the southeast so same shape of points, same tilted egg, but now it's down in, in Atlanta or Miami. Are you okay with that?
0: Which would be consistent with if you had a treatment and control, the means were different. Yes. But the bivariate relations were the same.
1: Yes, Great. Okay. So what MANOVA does is MANOVA says, where is the middle of that egg of points up in the northwest? And it identifies the centroid. And where is the middle of those points down in the southeast? And it identifies the centroid of those points and it connects those two with a line. And that line that connects the two centroids is the discriminant function. And if we took these data, these eggs of data, the one that's up in the northwest and the one that's down in the southeast, and we projected them onto that axis that connects the two centroids, MANOVA, specifically a Hotelling's T-squared, is like doing a T-test, but on the scores on that axis that connects the two centroids. So here's the thing that bugs me about MANOVA mostly. Other things bug me too. That axis is the axis that we are using to maximize the differences, to characterize the differences in the means between the two groups. That axis is nothing like the axis that you would have put through the egg in the treatment group or you would have put through the egg in the control group. In fact, it goes pretty much in the opposite kind of direction. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that MANOVA is testing the group differences on some axis that has no fidelity whatsoever to the relations among the variables in the groups and only has fidelity to the location differences between the groups. So at the end of the day, if someone even wanted to try to interpret in a multivariate sense what makes these groups different, let's look at that axis. That axis has nothing to do with what's actually governing the relations among your variables.
0: I think you articulated in a more technical way my very same concern that is almost more on a substantive level. Mm-hmm. Which is, why do you look at depression and anxiety simultaneously? Mm -hmm. Why did you pick those two? Why do you believe that your treatment affects those two variables? And if you believe that your intervention with adolescence is going to impact depression and it's going to impact anxiety, you must believe those two to be related in some common way whether there's an underlying factor of internalizing symptomatology or whether you believe there's a shared ideological mechanism that gives rise to those two variables. For me, it's like a logical syllogism. If you believe your treatment is impacting these two things, then you must believe those two things are related in some way. Therefore, do you instead want to build a model that, That better captures the relation between those rather than just throwing the barn doors open and saying, yeah, I think they're related. I I don't know how I'm going to put it in because that's what I learned and it increases power and I'm just going to do a t-test anyway once I reject the null hypothesis. And I think you nicely raised the infrastructure of my concern that underlies it. Mm -hmm. But mine again goes back to Aunt Dottie saying, oh, he's a bit of a coward.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So what you just said, I think is really nice. And that is that a person's research questions are either about depression and anxiety and stress. And so they're interested in examining those or their interests are in what underlies them. And MANOVA does neither. That's right. (laughs) So it just doesn't align well with people's questions. And we know how to do multiple ANOVAs. And MANOVA, even though it's called multivariate ANOVA, MANOVA is a terrible gateway to ANOVAs. I think it serves zero purpose And when I hear people say, and I have to tell you, I hear people say this all the time, um, well, I just did the initial MANOVA to control the type 1 error of a bunch of ANOVAs. That is a terrible reason to do MANOVA. The main reason is that it doesn't really work. And the reason it doesn't work is because you can have a collection of four outcomes. And if there are group differences on one of those outcomes, then that'll probably get you through the MANOVA gate. Then when you get in there and you do all of your ANOVAs, you got three variables where you're going to have some jacked up type one error. So it is true that MANOVA can guard your type one error rate under the complete null condition. But if you have one of those univariate nulls that is false, then MANOVA doesn't stand as any kind of gateway whatsoever. And then it's It's essentially like if a bunch of kids went to a club and the first kid handed the ID to the bouncer, and then the bouncer let all of them in based on that particular ID, right? So no one else needed to be checked because it only took one to get them in the door. And so Manova does not control the type one error rate. Are you okay with that as a public service announcement?
0: I am, but it makes me think a couple of things is first, if you don't do it for that reason, then why would you do it? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, right, is even when I teach it, I spend two hours talking about (laughs) Wilkes-Lambda. And again, is it their determinants of sums of squares and cross product matrices?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And it's not even an exact sampling distribution. You have to approximate it. Mm -hmm. But it's a Wilkes-Lambda. And that is the ID for the whole group, as you say, I mean, my question to you is if you mm. don't do that to get an Omnibus Wokes Lambda or Palai's Trace or Lolly Maxwell or whatever, mm-hmm. I mean, what is the reason for doing
1: a Minova? I have lost sight of the reason to do Manova. I have to really contort to convince myself to do a Manova. And the other side of what I had said was that if your interest is in the, vari- the individual variables themselves, then you should be doing tests on the individual variables. And if you're really concerned about type 1 error, then control the type 1 error rate in some way on the univariate tests themselves. If you're interested in those variables as a collective, what is that reason that they are a collective? And that's the other side of it that I think MANOVA is ill-suited for also that we have wonderful methods for trying to get at whatever the underlying dimension is that's governing a set of variables. So you what was the term you used for stress and all of that? Was it ideological? Well,
0: it overlaps with lots of prior episodes yeah. because one is the mediation stuff, etiological mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So does your intervention reduce stress that in turn reduces depression and anxiety? Sure. But another one is dimensionality, is are depression and anxiety correlated with one another because they're actually indicators of a shared underlying cause that is internalizing symptomatology? Yes. So one is a mediating question, one is a factor analysis question.
1: Exactly right. Again, neither of which is MANOVA.
0: Neither of which is MANOVA. But... What's interesting is I had two thoughts when you were talking earlier. Is one about the both related to the omnibus aspect of the MANOVA. A hundred years ago, when I had the GLM and I had Keppel as the text, he actually makes an argument in there very, very similar. That's a univariate, he doesn't address multivariate at all, but very, very similar about omnibus tests for the factors before you go to post-hoc comparisons. And it's almost identical to what you just said, is the omnibus test for a factor is the means on the outcome is equal for all groups. Mm -hmm. And only when you reject that omnibus that all group means are equal do you then go to the post-hoc comparisons. And he has a well-articulated argument To not do omnibus tests in ANOVA at all, and to just go to the group comparisons, because that's what you believe to exist anyway. And that there is a bit of invisibility cloak that, oh, well, I rejected the multi-degree of freedom omnibus F, that my five-level factor, not all means are equal, Mm -hmm. and now I'm going to go determine which means are unequal, is you can make a similar argument to say, well, screw the omnibus, who cares? I would put an
1: asterisk next to what you just said. And that is, if you want to go find group differences on variables, but let's let's go to the univariate level for a minute since it's easier to get our head around, and that's where you went. You do have a choice of whether or not you're going to do an omnibus ANOVA and then go in and do some sort of post hoc procedure, as it's sometimes called, or multiple comparison procedure. If you care about controlling the type one error rate on the comparisons that you are doing of the individual means, I would completely agree that the omnibus test is useless unless it's actually baked into the multiple comparison procedure type one error control structure. Mm -hmm. Fisher's LSD test, for example, requires a rejected omnibus test for you to go ahead and go in and do the pairwise comparisons. Tukey's test does not. So some of them are oriented so that that's formally part of the decision structure for error control. From a substantive standpoint, I find that omnibus tests serve pretty much no purpose whatsoever. So I'm with you and Keppel on that one.
0: And just to clarify, I'm not advocating for that. I'm just saying that Mm -hmm. the logical syllogism trickles down in a particular way. So as I've said, my main concerns tend to be more conceptual, but many of these are directly linked to very real assumptions that we have to invoke to allow us to estimate the model in the way that we do. What are the ones that concern you the most from a practitioner's perspective?
1: Yeah, and this builds up from analysis of variance into the multivariate world. So if someone asked me this question about analysis of variance, I would already be sort of humming and hawing my way through it, right? And and there are assumptions of normality as we're accustomed to and assumptions of independence of observations as we're kind of accustomed to. ANOVA in its traditional form also starts to make an assumption about homogeneity of variance. And then you might say, if we have samples of comparable size, that might not be such a big deal if we violate that particular assumption. But what happens with the homogeneity of variance assumption in ANOVA when you get to the multivariate world is that now we have to wrestle with it in multiple dimensions simultaneously. And what I said earlier was that the assumption is that the distributional shape that you have in each of the groups is exactly the same. Imagine you have your three outcome variables that you talked about before, which were depression, anxiety, and stress. What that means is that the variance of all three of those is the same across the groups you're comparing. The covariances between every pair of those variables is the same. So the entire dispersion that you have is identical across groups. That's the homogeneity of dispersion assumption. That, along with issues of normality and multiple dimensions simultaneously, independence of observations, and the other standard legal disclaimers. So the assumption of homogeneity of dispersion to me is so much to swallow. Way too much. And the reason for it, for me, is the most egregious thing. Just like in analysis of variance, why do we need homogeneity of variance? My hypothesis isn't about variance. My hypothesis is about means. My test is about means. Why do I need this assumption about variance? And the answer is, well, it helps our T get to behave like a T, or it helps our F behave like an F. When we get to the multivariate world, well, it helps our test statistic to be able to behave more like a distribution that we know and love. So for me, one of the most egregious parts of this is that We are making assumptions that have nothing to do with what we care about testing for the sole reason that we need it to get our test statistic to follow a distribution that allows us to do the hypothesis testing of the things that we care about. And I think that's about the crappiest reason there is to make an assumption when it has nothing to do with what you want to test, but you need it in place to take care of these other things. That bothers me.
0: You're exactly right about following a T or an F or a chi-square. And you can even see the pedantic requirement where every one of us had undergrad stat where you have a two-group T-test and you have the little simple formula for getting a pooled variance. I mean, it's a calculation issue. You have the difference between the two-group means divided by the square root of the pooled variance Mm -hmm. between the two groups. So you make a homoscedasticity assumption So that you can take the average of the two and go ahead and scale that up to sums of squares and cross products matrices and if you're not familiar with that term all it is is a covariance matrix where you haven't divided by n minus 1 or degrees of freedom for whatever you're doing and so it's just the sums of squares are on the diagonal and the cross products Mm -hmm. are on the off diagonal but what's good for the two sample t-test just scales up to the MANOVA where we make that very same assumption but now it's on a p by p covariance matrix across every possible group. We've been doing this very simple treatment and control, Mm -hmm. but we could have a three by three by four factorial design matrix Mm -hmm. with five dependent variables, which are not absurd numbers to have in a lot of these
1: applications.
0: And that homogeneity of bivariate dispersion holds across all of those groupings.
1: All 36 cells in that design that you described. Exactly. Ooh,
0: nicely done. Thank you. Look at you. Who says you're entering senescence? I think you said it really nicely, and so I'm going to paraphrase it less nicely, Mm -hmm. because I can't remember your nice saying of it, but that notion that it has nothing to do with what we believe exists, but is a condition we have to impose to use the method that we're using. There's a tautology to it, Mm -hmm. which maybe brings me to... The king is dead. Long live the king.
1: Meet the new boss. as the old boss.
0: So if Manova is going to leave his earthly vessel and pass to a better place, okay, fine. What do we bring in in his place?
1: Well, I will say Manova is not quite dead yet, right? If my... <laughs> <laughs>
0: not dead. What? Nothing. I'm not dead. Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is.
1: Ooh.
0: I'm not. He isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so why is he not quite dead yet?
1: Well, the thing is that people out there haven't gotten the memo. You know, in the EBSCO search I did for the last 10 years, when I get 4,000 hits on Manova, then people don't seem to be aware of that. And that might be because they're not aware of what the alternatives are. And so I think it's a good idea for us to talk about what people might be doing. And one way that I think about it is, what is your question? Because I think there is no question to which the answer is MANOVA. I just don't. Your question is either a question about univariate things, or your question is about a process that operates, that defines the relation among those measured variables. So for univariate things... Whatever. Do a bunch of ANOVAs. I don't care. Control the type 1 error using one of Bonferroni's descendants. Great. Good for you. When we get to the multivariate kinds of strategies, for me, the answer is, well, what do you think the relation is among these things? And you had some nice alternatives there with regard to mediation processes or otherwise.
0: So couple of things. First, I'm going to pull a Billy Pilgrim and become unstuck in time, as Mm -hmm. Kurt Vonnegut would say. You texted me, Minova must die. Mm -hmm. And I texted back and I said, nobody ever uses that on my side of the street. And I said, is it really going to be of any interest? And that is where the 4,000 EBSCO host search came up. That's right. Which you threw back onto my desk of saying, Really? Well, here's what I
1: found in the last 10 years. Including psychology, just in journals, right? I I weeded out everything else and I still hit 4,000 in the last 10 years. So help give it some alternatives right now.
0: What? is your question. What is your mechanism? It's my own background in clinical psychology that I keep coming back to mechanism and etiology. Mm -hmm. And even though I groused a little bit in the mediation episode about how it's just a compound parameter and let's not imbue any magical quality by multiplying three digits together and somehow we're seeing into the eyes of God about a causal process... You had three parameters, you took the product, now you have a compound parameter. Let's Just be cool, you're fine. Mm-hmm. It's a test and nothing else. Even though I groused a little bit about that, I still deeply, deeply think about mechanistic kinds of things. And so if you have a treatment, you must believe that it's impacting something. And you must believe that it's doing that in a particular way, because that's how you designed your treatment. Mm -hmm. And what is that? What did you target? How do you expect that to manifest itself in the sample data? If you target a particular thing, do you believe that to have downstream effects? So if you're teaching coping skills, do you believe that your treatment influences coping, but then coping moderates the relation between environmental stress and anxiety? Is that what you really believe? Well, then that's what you need to test. And if you don't do treatment, think about gender differences and you're looking for subgroup differences. You must believe there to be some mechanism Mm -hmm. for why there are gender differences on your set of outcomes. And so instead of just saying, well, let's take a weighted composite of the DVs and do an omnibus test that we'll almost always reject. And quite honestly, if we don't reject it, we probably didn't have enough power in the first place. And then we're just going to line them up in a bunch of univariate tests and, and do our usual thing. I don't believe that's consistent with the
1: model that brought you to the table. This is perfect for me. As I've said before, especially in the modeling or the model-based thinking episode, that I get tired of the statistical tail wagging the theoretical dog. And I think Manova is one of those places where people might not even realize the disconnect between the two. I think you absolutely start with the whiteboard. You go up there and you draw the process that you think is operating, and the analytical technique that comes out at the end only comes out at the end, right? You don't lead with, "Well, I'm doing a Manova because." No, 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 no. That corresponds to something very specific, and it almost certainly doesn't correspond to the processes that you are laying out. So. I I think what you say is completely consistent with the message that we've had now in all the years that we've been doing Quantitude (laughs) that lead with what you believe, right? Draw the model that corresponds to your belief system and worry about how you're going to test that on the back end. And your test on the back end might involve things within that larger model that address each of the outcomes that are part of the model, or it might address certain mediating kinds of relations across those groups, or it might address some underlying latent factor mean. If you think there's a factor that underlies these particular variables and they serve as indicators, then maybe the best test is to see which group has more of that underlying factor on average. And again, none of these correspond to MANOVA.
0: And reiterating your tail not wagging the dog, while you're thinking about these things, think about the design of new studies. If you're doing your dissertation, your operating budget is Mm -hmm. (laughs)
1: $1.50.
0: So what do you do? You have your treatment, you have your intervention, you have sweat equity, you've put a thousand hours in... And you have a scale score on depression, a scale score on anxiety, what else are you going to do? Well, think about it. If you have a scale score on depression, a scale score on anxiety, did multiple items go into that? Mm -hmm. Could those be used to define a multiple indicator latent factor? Mm -hmm. Could you do a multiple indicator latent factor for depression correlated with a multiple indicator latent factor for anxiety and then do a multiple group model and test invariance Mm -hmm. in depression and anxiety? at the level of the latent factors and to determine a mean difference because you could do that and think about in the design, we've joked about it, but it is true. It's all a whiteboard problem. Mm -hmm. How do you believe your set of constructs to be related to one another? And what is the model that is necessary to optimally evaluate that from an empirical standpoint? And I would double down with you, I think rarely, if ever, is a MANOVA appropriate for anything we do, given other alternatives? Back when Hotelling was doing his hotelling things, mm-hmm. there in Chapel Hill. That was it. Yeah. He was in Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. Hotelling was in Chapel Hill at UNC. Mm-hmm. And I love teaching T Squared because of the elegance. It's beautiful. Again, it's a beautiful thing. We don't need that anymore. Mm-hmm. We've outgrown that. Think about it that way. Is we have outgrown multivariate, and there are new things that we have available to us, both that we can apply to existing data, but also that we can design future studies in anticipation of expanding these analytic techniques in a way that is much more useful to us.
1: And I also think this is the tip of a larger conversation about what a modern curriculum ought to look like, not just with respect to MANOVA, but more broadly. What do we think we ought to be teaching right now so that we don't each year go in and do the same saber-tooth curriculum that we've been doing since the dawn of time? That would be a fun conversation because... I do
0: not regret not talking about canonical correlation mm-hmm. anymore mm-hmm. or discriminant function analysis mm-hmm. or any other thing that mm-hmm. I would get to the end and say, yeah, you'll never use this in practice.
1: There's a quote that I think is a nice fitting one to try and wrap this up. It appears in a multivariate textbook by Tobacnik and Fidel. It was in the textbook 30 years ago, and it says, in several years of working with students, we have been royally unsuccessful at talking our students out of MANOVA. That's sort of what we're trying to do here, is to put a little bit more uh, rationale behind you know, what MANOVA can do, what MANOVA can't do, and maybe start looking towards some alternatives for people to move past what has been done.
0: So maybe we can gently lead it out back, sit it on a stump, <laughs> and as it's enjoying the sunset... Hit it with a shovel. (laughs) So now is when the singing of Danny Boy begins, Mm -hmm. when all the marshmallow jello salad is gone, (laughs) and it's time to go home. So Uh this has been a fun talk, and thank you as always, everyone. We really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, everybody. Take care. Don't do Manova. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Danny Boy. Hey Potters! don't forget to tell your friends to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they go to avoid doing their day jobs. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message and listen to past episodes. And finally, you can get rockin' Quantitude merch on RedBubble.com, where all proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to help support remote access in low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude. The podcast that inspired one person to ask, do people actually listen to this? Thanks, Patrick's brother, Dan. Today's episode was sponsored by Paraidolia, the belief that you see meaningful patterns in things that are otherwise random and unrelated, also known as exploratory data analysis. And by Bonferroni, the preferred pasta dish of statisticians everywhere. It's delicious with white clam sauce. And finally, by the Loch Ness Monster, still easier to catch sight of than a really good instrumental variable. This is most definitely not NPR.
0: Wow,
1: this looks like quite a party. This Oktoberfest, half brow. House. Hmm. Oh, look at those cool shorts and suspenders. Hallöchen, pretzel, beer. Sir, Danke. Hmm. <laughs> Noch ein Bier? Zwei Massen. Zwei Massen. Danke. Hey, is that a worth eating contest? Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Und der Gewinner ist das Frettchen. And the winner is the Ferret. Did you just call me a ferret? Um... I am not a ferret. Ich bin ein Lima. Now, who wants to do the chicken dance?